in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been. Whatever will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. Let's pray together as we look at this passage. Gracious Father, it is our desire this morning to hear from you. Uh, Lord, this is your word. You have given it to us in love. And Lord, we want to lovingly listen this morning to your voice. And so we ask that your spirit would be with us, that you would give us ears to hear your voice, that you would give us eyes to see you more clearly, and that your spirit would be at work to change our hearts right here as we look into your word. Lord, strengthen us and set our eyes on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Jeremy mentioned, I grew up in Nebraska, and the winters in Nebraska are not that different from New England. Um, and uh, if you've ever been for a, a, you know, a nice drive on a snowy day, perhaps you've had the experience of all of a sudden losing control of your car. Uh, it's a pretty terrifying thing. Um, few years ago, I was on my way to church one Sunday, and as I was coming down the hill, my tires and the road ceased to have a meaningful relationship at that moment, and I was icy out, and so you grab the wheel, you hit the brakes, nothing happens. You're just sliding, and, and it's terrifying. My wife was pregnant at the time, we had a three-year-old son in the back seat, and uh, by God's grace, thankfully, you know, there were no injuries. Our, our car had seen better days by the time we got to the bottom of that hill. Uh, but it's scary to lose control like that. Perhaps even more scary than that, though, is finding out that you never had control to begin with. And that's what Solomon discovers in this passage this morning. Ecclesiastes is usually attributed to Solomon 
And it's one of those books in our more honest moments that we kind of wonder what's it doing in the Bible. Uh, as, as he kind of explores all of life looking for uh, anything of lasting gain and value in, in what he calls under the sun. Life here and now in this fallen world, what we see and experience day in and day out. You know, is there any lasting gain? As he's exploring, for, uh, exploring that, he's so honest with his findings, what he describes over and over again as vanity or vapor. You think of trying to grab a puff of smoke you know, you, you can't get a hold of it. It doesn't last. It doesn't really amount to anything. Solomon is so honest with what he finds in his search that some have accused him of being unorthodox. And there have been debates, you know, among the rabbis and such and whether or not this book even belongs in our Bibles. One ancient rabbi quipped that Solomon wrote Song of Solomon in his youth, Proverbs in his maturity, and Ecclesiastes in his senility. So, and yet, there is a method to Solomon's madness, if you will, uh, because it's in wrestling honestly with the disappointments and the inconsistencies of life in this world that we realize our only hope for lasting gain is God himself. And to reinforce that, every now and then, Solomon steps away from the vanity and gives us a glimpse of what life looks like from above the sun, from God's perspective. And chapter 3 is one of those places where he does that. Thanks to the birds, it's also one of the most famous passages in Ecclesiastes. If you don't know who the birds are, your life is better for that. You do not need to look that up on Wikipedia or anything afterwards. Um... But, you know, if if we look at chapter 3 closely, we find in this passage what is at the same time one of the most unsettling and comforting passages in all of the Bible. It's unsettling because it brings us face to face with the jarring reality that we are not in control. And, And more than that, that we never actually had it to begin with. And yet it's comforting Because it reminds us who is God, who is working out his sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful yet mysterious way. Solomon begins to unfold this beautiful mystery with his affirmation in verse 1. So if you look at your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So Solomon has been observing how life works, and he's looking out, he's studying that, and he recognizes that there is an order to the rhythms of life. There's an order to how all of life operates under heaven, a relatively consistent pattern to what happens over time. And to show us what he means by that, he then gives us a poem. Uh, with 14 pairs of life events, each starting with a reference to time. So if you heard over and over again the word time coming up in that poem. And so each starts with a reference to time, and then each pair contains a set of opposites. Things like you know, uh, uh, birth and death, weeping and laughing, and so on. And so looking at that poem, Solomon starts 
in verse 2 with really one of the most basic observations of what happens over time, uh, the beginning and ending of life. And so, first, for people and animals, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Likewise, for vegetation, there's a, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So it's the, the proverbial circle of life, as Disney would put it. Uh, then in verse 3, he looks at the destruction and repair of both bodies and buildings. And so, as we live out our days in a fallen world, there is a time to kill and a time to to heal. If you, you think about life, again, in a fallen world where, where sin continues to uh, plague us and, and where things do not work the way they're supposed to, there are two industries that will never cease to have a market in a fallen world. The war industry and the medical industry. There's always those things happening. Similarly, there is a time to break down buildings, to destroy them, whether renovation or, or in war, perhaps. And there's a time to build up. You can drive around pretty much any neighborhood in this area, and you'll see buildings or businesses, old buildings that are dilapidated being torn down and new ones being built in their place. This is how, what happens over time. Verse 4 shows us how to respond to life's various situations. So some of the things that happen in verses 2 and 3, how do we respond to those things? Verse 3, excuse me, verse 4, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, to celebrate. Uh, Verse 5 is a little bit harder to understand, but it deals generally with joining and separating. That's kind of the theme there. So there's a time to cast away or scatter stones and a time to gather stones together, possibly referring to scattering stones over an enemy's field in the ancient world, something we see happen in 2 Kings 3, so that they can't use that ground for farming anymore. And then when the conflict's over, gathering stones back together to make the ground useful, which is why we have all of these nice stone-lined roads in New England, gathering all those stones off the ground uh, to make it useful for farming. Likewise, concerning friendship or or perhaps intimacy, there's a time to join, to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 6 describes how we treat our possessions. Uh, So there's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Similar to verse 4, verse 7 then shows us, again, it's another picture of our response to life's tragedies. There's a time to tear, as in tearing your garments in the ancient world. Sometimes we see that in the Bible where in grief or mourning or protest, they tear their garments. And there's a time to sew, to mend, to put them back together and move forward. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Again, which could be just generally speaking, there are times when it's wise to say something and and when it's wise not to, but also perhaps in response to tragedy. And then finally, verse 8 describes the fundamental emotions of human life. There is a time to love and a time to hate, along with the social effects of those emotions, a time for war and a time for peace. So Solomon looks at life, and this is what he observes, observes happening. These are the rhythms of life in a fallen world. Now, the question often comes up, with this poem? Is it just describing what is, 
or is it describing what should be when and then so that we can figure that out and live according to it? Uh, Well, on the one hand, we would clearly do well to keep in step with the rhythms and patterns of life. So so there is wisdom in that. It doesn't do any good to plant your crops in the fall and then try and harvest them in the spring. It's just not going to work. You know, when when you're standing at the bedside of someone you love who's dying or or recently died, that's not the time to break into comedy hour, okay? And so so there's wisdom in recognizing that, that there are certain times where certain behaviors are appropriate. You know, I, uh, some of us, myself included, would, would do well to learn the proper time for keeping something and the top, proper time for throwing something away. Uh, I spent almost at least three hours yesterday cleaning our den at, at home and having to apply that lesson directly uh, to my life. And so there is wisdom uh, in, in discerning the cadence of life and living according to it. But we would be foolish not to stop and ask, where does that cadence come from? Who crafted these rhythms that we can observe? Who wrote the score that creation dances to or the play that we're acting out? There may be appropriate responses to different situations, but what say do we have in those situations themselves? Look back at the list and notice how little of this we actually have control over. Which one of us had any say in the day of our birth? Did anybody consult you at what point you wanted to come into existence? No. And, And nobody's going to consult you when it's time to go either. We're not at liberty to rearrange the calendar or to to shuffle the seasons around. If I could, I would love to have a much longer fall and a much shorter winter in New England. That would be my personal request. And I think everybody would agree with me probably on that. But it's not something we can do, can we? It's just we can't. We recognize there's a proper time for weeping and for laughing, but we have no say in when those times happen. You know, the the joy of my sister-in-law's wedding was quickly tempered by the news that three guests were in a car accident on their way to the reception. Again, Nebraska winters for you. Which one of us can cause a war to happen or can bring about world peace? So there is a pattern at play in this world, but we're not the ones crafting it or calling the shots. And in comes that shocking realization we're not in control. As one author describes, when, when you look at this poem in this way, the repetition of a time for this and a time for that begins to be oppressive. You know, whatever our skill and initiative, our real masters seem to be these inexorable seasons, not only those of the calendar, but that tide of events which moves us now to one kind of action which seems fitting, now to another which puts it all in reverse. And you just feel thrown back and forth by what life hands you, by these alternating seasons. The purpose of this list is to show us that every matter under heaven has a proper time and a fitting place, but that we have no control over when that time and place is. And we never have had any. So what do we do with that? 
What do we do with that? There's only really one thing you can do, and that is fear. It's fear. The question is whom or what you will fear. The seemingly impersonal and dispassionate march of time or the very personal, compassionate God who weaves all of that together. Our default, you know, left to myself, my default when I realize my weakness and the fact that I'm not in control of things, my default is to fear life and the whole variety of hardships that it might throw at me at any moment. Uh, You know, our hearts, you just think through your work week, our hearts can be filled with so many different anxieties in a given day. You know, little things like driving back and forth to work, is there going to be an accident? Putting your your child to bed at night, are they going to wake up? You know, how many times do I get up in the middle of the night, check, make sure they're still breathing? You know, hitting send on an email, there's a lot of anxiety that can come with that. You know, and how this person's going to respond. We've heard too many stories of freak accidents or unexpected tragedies. And and so we begin to operate in terms of risk management or, or we take safety measures to try and ward off life. And again, there's, there's wisdom in some of those things, but it's not always wisdom that drives us to that. Sometimes it's fear. We become driven by fear, this terror of what might happen if time gets its way. We may give lip service to a belief in God, but sometimes the way we actually live agrees more with the assessment of notable atheist Richard Dawkins that human existence is, quote, neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose, end quote. We feel that sometimes. We feel that as we're tossed back and forth, and we fear that. And eventually, left unchecked, it's going to lead us to one of two places, either to give up and resign ourselves to a meaningless existence or perhaps medicate that meaninglessness that we feel, you know, look for some sort of escape. Maybe it's money, maybe it's food, sex, drugs, entertainment, anything that's going to take the edge off or numb us. Or we stand up in defiance of time and chance in the spirit of William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a beautiful poem. Problem is, it's hogwash. It's an absolute lie. It is at best wishful thinking, 
and at worst, sheer delusion. Because eventually, despite whatever resolve we bring to it, time will win and you will lose. But there's another response to the realization that we're not in control and that we've never actually had it. And that is to fear the God who does have it. And by fear here, I mean reverence, respect, joyful surrender to God, trust, dependence. And that, surprisingly, given the rest of the book, is actually what Solomon points us to in this passage. Verses 9 through 15 explain why. In verses 9 through 10, Solomon returns to a question that he's already asked in this book. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. But instead of concluding here that all is vanity, the clouds part and we actually catch a glimpse of life from above, from God's vantage. So listen to verse 11, which is the heart of this passage, and it's Solomon's commentary on the poem in verses 1 through 8. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. The march of time is not random or callous. God is the author of time and events. And he makes every event beautiful, fitting, suitable, appropriate to its time, according to his plan. A plan so wonderful and expansive that there's no actual way for us to take the whole thing in. God is working out his sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful and yet a mysterious way. So if you think of God's plan for all of time in history as a great tapestry, so one of those big rugs you might see hanging on a, on a castle wall or something like that, with all the different color threads working together to, to create a beautiful picture, one author explains We are like the desperately nearsighted. So inching our way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in, we see enough to recognize its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as the Creator does, whole and entire from beginning to end. Or or to switch the imagery just a little bit and think of that tapestry still on the loom being woven. Another author describes, From the vantage underneath, little is visible but snarls and knots. But above, the beautiful pattern of the work on the loom can be seen. As Solomon has shown, we live out our lives under the loom. And everything we see is vanity. So so how can we see the pattern above? The only possible answer is through faith in the sovereign God. It's Mother's Day. Um, For me personally, what drove me and my wife to 
learned this lesson was the loss of two of our children to miscarriage several years ago. Uh, When we decided to try for kids, uh, we got pregnant right away and and had a relatively uneventful pregnancy and had our, our son. And so we kind of, you know, thought, hey, we can do this. We can make babies. And so, you know, when it came time to try for number two, again, right away we got pregnant. And then six weeks in, we lost that baby. And it was the absolute saddest time we've ever experienced in our life. About 10 months later, we got pregnant again. And of course, the excitement's a little bit tempered at that point because there's this fear of what's going to happen. Is this going to happen again? And, and, and both my wife and I remember saying to God, we cannot go through that again, Lord. Please don't let us go through that again. And we passed the six-week mark, and, and, and there was some relief. And then at seven weeks, we lost that baby as well. I didn't know it was possible to be sadder than we had been the first time, but we found out. And we came to the realization that we are not in control of our fertility. We thought we were, and we learned that we weren't. We looked at the underside of that loom to try and make sense of it all. All we could see was the knots and the snarls. It didn't make sense. But in our sadness, there grew in our hearts a richer sense of eternity and a deeper longing for it to come. A longing for God's new creation. That day when God's own hand will wipe the tear from every eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. By God's grace, he has blessed us with three girls since then, who love to terrorize their older brother. I cannot claim to understand what God was doing but I can trust that he knows what he was doing and that he has made everything beautiful in its time and also that he has set eternity in the hearts of men yet so that we can't see what he's been doing from beginning to end. If that's true, if God is sovereign, which means he has absolute authority over all of time in history, that no event escapes his notice or his plan, but he is actively working out his plan, everything according to his purpose. If that's true, we learned that we can trust him. We can trust him. We can take our fears and put them in his hands, and we can follow Solomon's instructions in verses 12 and 13. And actually find joy in daily life despite these fears that threaten to overtake us. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We, we fear that, that callousness of time. And, and, it, and it 
threatens to completely rob the joy of the daily life. And yet, if we have faith in a sovereign God, there's actually joy to be had even in the daily grind of things. There's joy even in the midst of vanity. If there is a sovereign God and a good God at work in and behind every matter, you can be free from anxiety, free from the fear of that that callous and and different circumstances, enjoying things like eating, drinking, going to work, actually taking joy in those things. We can give ourselves to serving God and doing good, whether it's loving a difficult colleague at work or or sharing Christ with our neighbors or laying our lives down in love for our spouse or for our children. We can trust God and do those things knowing that, that if he's sovereign and at work, then the results are in his hands and I don't have to fear what's going to come of my labor. And though it's not easy and can in fact be unspeakably hard, we can even trust God when life falls apart and we find ourselves in that realization that not only do we not have control, but we never had it to begin with. Whether it's the foreclosure notice, the cancer diagnosis, the layoff, when the unthinkable happens, we can trust God not because we understand it, but because we're confident that he does. That he can see the whole picture from beginning to end. He knows how the whole thing fits together. And that he's both powerful enough and good enough to work it out according to his plan. And God will be faithful to accomplish that plan. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away or perhaps will call the past to account. This is a picture of complete sovereign authority and power. No one can add to God's work. No one can take away from God's work. You cannot interfere with God and his plan. Sometimes that idea can be scary in a sense, when we realize that we don't have as much control as we thought we did, but that God actually has all control. Sometimes that can be scary and and even rub us the wrong way a bit. But it's only frustrating or scary if we think we would be doing a better job at running things than him. As one commentator states, this doctrine has a hard edge and more than one person has cut himself on it. But denial of it does not remove the difficulties. It just removes the possibility of finding any solace. If we take sovereignty out of God's hands, in other words, who are we going to give it to? Ourselves? Time and chance? Better to trust that God really is sovereign and good. As Solomon reminds us, all we can see is the bottom of that loom. That's our vantage. That's our perspective. We can't take the whole thing in. 
But thankfully, we don't have to because God can and does. There is a sovereign God who has both authority and the power to bring about his good plan. And he has proven that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So if you think about that ongoing march of time, this, this cycle and, and this, this cadence, where's it all headed? Where is the march of time going? Everything points to and flows out of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where time was headed. In fact, listen to the way Paul describes the advent of Christ. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In Galatians, or at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, it's right on time. In Christ, God made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's beautiful mystery. There was a lot that did not make sense in his life and ministry. You know, you think about the irony that the God of creation stepping into his own creation only to be rejected and murdered by that creation. That's mysterious. That, that's something you don't expect. And yet God was at work in that mystery to bring about something beautiful. Salvation. New life. New creation. There is hope in Jesus. All of our sin and rebellion, everything we've ever done to, to tell God we think we would do a better job than you at life and, and we're not going to recognize your authority or your reign, big and small ways, all of that sin and rebellion, and all of our sorrow. So everything in our lives that doesn't make sense, that doesn't go the way that it was supposed to, that, that the hurt, the frustrations, the questions, all of human experience under the sun was folded into the life and story of Jesus taken upon himself on the cross, that he might deal with the sin and bear our sorrows and bring new life and wholeness to us through his resurrection from the dead. Whatever it is that has thrown you off, whatever it is that you are bearing in your life, Jesus knows exactly what you're bearing because he's already borne it in your place on the cross. All that confusion, all of that frustration, he knows. There's hope in Jesus. And through him, through faith in him, the mysterious parts of our life can finally begin to make a little bit of sense as they're folded into the story of his own suffering, of his own loss. As he gave his life, that we might have life. So how do we respond when we're frustrated, when, when we've been staring so long at the bottom of the loom that 
it just doesn't make sense. Or when we're discouraged, when we realize with fear that we're not in control and that we never actually had control, how do we respond to that? According to Solomon, rejoice that God is in control. Fear God. So respect him. Trust him. Faith in a sovereign God is the only foundation for joy and hope in a fallen world. Think about that. Faith in a sovereign God is the only foundation for joy and hope in a fallen world. Trust him. Enjoy the gifts that he's given you. Because you can trust him, you can enjoy the little things in life, the daily things. And by his grace, serve him by doing good all your days, making the most of your time, trusting the results to God and knowing that because he is sovereign, because he is good, he's working out his plan, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we confess that all too often we really want to be in charge. We confess that very often our complaints, even our prayers, our our veiled complaints, that, that we think we would do a better job if we had control. And God, we just confess that's not true. We confess that we have just, just a small view of your big plan. It's big enough to know that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are doing something beautiful, but it's too small to know everything and how it all fits together. And so give us faith to trust you. Even when life falls apart, fill our hearts with faith that you are good that you love us far more than we can ever imagine and that you will be faithful to work out your purposes and you have proven it to us through Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.